0: Hello. Welcome to my podcast, The Mongols, Chinese Emperors. This is Episode 9, Yuan, Brand, and Mark. In this episode, I take a one-episode break from the chronology. I want to talk about the Mongol Yuan government, trade, culture, society, and the Yuan brand, and Mark. I think this episode will put some of what I have been talking about into better context. History is... Always far more meaningful and useful when we better understand the bigger picture and how those circumstances shaped or were caused by everything else around. After this episode, I will get back to the chronology and I will soon come to the epic evaporation of the Mongols and the Yuan dynasty from China. Despite the shifting and drifting directions of all the diverse Yuan emperors, the essential components of government installed by Kublai Khan, the first Yuan emperor, remained through the end of the dynasty. That observation alone makes the failures of the mid-Yuan rulers even more troubling and tragic. The place was set for them, and for the reasons I have already discussed, they still could not keep the dynasty on course. When Kublai Khan formed the Yuan dynasty in China, he relied heavily on a myriad of experts, Chinese, Mongolians, Jurchens, Turks, Muslims, and Buddhists. He wanted a government reflective of the diverse ethnic makeup of the dynasty. And it appears the Chinese had the biggest influence on him, as most of the Yuan government resembled Chinese governments before them. Perhaps the most notable difference was the Mongols tended to defer to military-type institutions more so than the Chinese ever would have done. Another notable difference was the Yuan legal system. Kublai Khan had different tribunals with different jurisdictions depending on the litigants' ethnic background. There was a separate tribunal for Mongols and Uyghurs and others for other ethnicities. To say the least, it was complicated and, for sure, discriminatory. About halfway through the dynasty, this changed a little, but only in the sense of less tribunals. They consolidated the personal jurisdiction rules. While many of the Yuan administrative entities appeared to be Chinese-like, the actual functioning of these ministries reflected Mongolian customs and styles. The important thing to come away from the discussion of the Mongol-run government in China was that the Mongols and their long-allied ethnic groups were generally favored over the Chinese. Certainly, there were many Chinese employed by all levels of the Yuan government, but the Mongols always carved out the most important parts to them and their Central Asian allies. Of all the foreign ethnic groups that were favored, the Turks were the most favored. You may even recall in our most recent episode the discussion of El Temer, himself a Turk. The end analysis of the Yuan government was that it reflected both continuities and breaks with the Chinese past and historical precedent. Early on, the Mongols supported trade, in the beginning, via the Silk Road. And a lot of those trade connections came from Muslim and Turkic traders. Upon the amalgamation of the Mongol Empire, it brought within its jurisdiction and control a large portion of the Silk Road. The Mongols actively promoted the Silk Road, and much of their trade came through the Silk Road. There had been for a long time robust trade in silk, jade, pepper, ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, silver, gunpowder, carpets, cotton, pearls, precious stones, weapons, linen, fine cloth, horses, livestock, and many other items. The Mongols welcomed trade and travelers from Central and Western Asia and Eurasia once the Mongols became the rulers of China, Kublai built infrastructure to further support trade. I already mentioned that Kublai Khan improved and extended the Grand Canal, linking Beijing by water to the rest of the world. Maritime trade was no exception. It grew slowly at first, but technology and infrastructure progressed it. The two Chinese seaports at Guangzhou and Fuzhou, the biggest, linked the dynasty with the Indian Ocean, Arabian Sea, and the Persian Gulf. The Yuan elevated the social status of once poorly thought-of merchants. They thrived under the Mongol dynasty. The Mongols changed the perception of them and viewed trade as essential and indispensable to the economy. The basic unit of money in the Yuan dynasty was called the Chao. And the Mongols were the first to introduce paper currency, first made from the bark of mulberry trees. At first, wooden blocks were used as printing plates. Eventually, this evolved to bronze plates. In the beginning of the Yuan dynasty, the paper currency was backed by silver. Artisans and craftspeople were also elevated in status during the Yuan dynasty, mostly in the favorable way they were taxed. Another benefit to the good trading routes is that with goods and services came ideas from the west and the east. This makes sense considering the geographical reach of the Mongol empire. The cultural exchange was a good byproduct of the trade industry. In fact, without the Mongols, much of China would have remained isolated. The Yuan dynasty saw advances in calligraphy, cartography, and printing. The Mongols supported theater and it generally flourished. The Yuan dynasty is also credited for the production of the blue Zhengdezhen or Zhengdezhen porcelain. The Mongols are also attributed to improving the navigational compass, firearms, and exploding artillery shells. There are accounts from that time of the unusual, un Chinese like habits of the Mongolian royal court. For instance, at the dinner table. They would use daggers instead of fine cutlery to slice meats and foods. The Chinese considered the Mongolian court as informal and practiced few, if any, rituals that a Chinese court would have practiced, let alone recognized. Even the Mongolian royal family that inhabited the Forbidden City did or had odd habits and preferences. Some of them preferred living in tents within the grounds of the Forbidden City in Beijing. Generally speaking, the royal families of the Yuan Dynasty were more or less indifferent toward Chinese culture. There were exceptions, of course, and I have talked about those in the various episodes. In the view of a few scholars of this era, Chinese culture made little overall impact on the Mongolians as a people, And conversely, Mongolian court life found little interest in China at large. Yuan political institutions and the manner they were operated reflected Mongolian, Central Asian, and Chinese precedents. That makes interpreting the dynasty especially complicated and unclear. Further complicating the interpretation was that in some instances, Mongolian methods were used to resolve Chinese problems or achieve Chinese goals and vice versa. Population numbers, as they go up or down, can give a reliable, big-picture snapshot of society or a nation, especially when that snapshot is compared to another snapshot of a different time. The key, of course, is that the data must be accurate, reliable, and complete. And therein lies one of the problems with using this data during the Yuan dynasty. Let me explain. The Yuan government did put forth a good effort to tally accurate census counts It is believed, however, the census was only done for the purposes of levying and collecting taxes, as well as some limited social engineering. Non-taxpayers may have been excluded from the census counts, but even that is not clear, as the available records do not definitively state that. The best available census number from the dynasty was conducted in the year 1290, it counted almost 60 million persons in China. But missing from the counts was Yunnan province that only had been recently conquered in that same year. We also know the military was not counted, nor were slaves and priests and monks. There was another census during the Yuan dynasty from the year 1330, 40 years later. But it is suspect because it shows no appreciable increase in population from the 1290 census. Some scholars have suggested that the 1330 census was just the 1290 census, with some minor changes carried forward. So we have to believe there were at least 60 million people in China in the year 1290. And if that number is true, it is troubling. Why? Well, the far more fastidious Ming, the Han Chinese, conducted a census in the year 1393 when they were in charge of China. It put the population of China at 60 and one-half million. That number more or less corroborates the Yuan census a century before in the year 1290. Here is the troubling detail. In the year 1207, there was a census by the Jin Dynasty. It showed a population of 53.5 million. A year 1223 Song Dynasty census tallied a population of 63 million. Combining the Jin and the Song censuses, reflecting both North and South China, results in a population of between 110 million and 120 million. If all of this is true, China lost one half of its population in a span of 200 years, an enormous and alarming decrease. It also means that about the time the Mongols began their push into China, there were anywhere from 100 million to 120 million persons inhabiting China, north and south. We know, because I discussed it in an earlier episode, that the Mongols waged a violent, long, and scorched earth devastation in their conquest of the Jin Dynasty. It is conceivable that the slaughter was so catastrophic that one half of the inhabitants were killed, enslaved, or permanently fled that region. But we just do not know the explanation for the steep population declines. It could just merely be that the counting or the records or both were way off. At the end of the day, the large census anomalies and differences make it impossible to accurately quantify the Yuan Dynasty's societal impact on China. The Yuan Dynasty is filled with lots of interesting anomalies, such as the census, and accurately quantifying the Mongols' impact on China during the Yuan Dynasty. Not an anomaly, but interesting. And as I previously mentioned, Kublai Khan and the Mongols reunited China for the first time since the 10th century. People could then, more freely, north and south, move around to areas they previously had no access. Ancient family connections were reconnected. It cannot be underestimated that what the reunification meant to the Chinese psyche. Even so, The Mongol conquest of China had conflicting benefits and detriments. On the benefits side was that China was unified, traveling through China a bit easier. The detriment was that the Song Dynasty had been respected for their cultural progress and customs, and the Mongols had set out to destroy it the Mongols were not much impressed with Chinese cultural advancements, or so the Chinese believed. Something I've touched on already was the ethnic diversity and cultural diversity of the Yuan dynasty. Perhaps that was the starkest and most far-reaching consequence of Mongol rule. Surprisingly, however, it has been argued by some, that the diversity did not leave a measurable or lasting impression on China. If that is true, maybe a partial explanation of that was that those foreign peoples, cultures, and ideas were absorbed into the Chinese miasma and sinicized. In the next episode, I will get back to the chronology, These will be the last decades of the Yuan Dynasty and Mongol domination of China and usher in the Ming Dynasty. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.